Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 237 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Health CEO, an interview with Nicole Oliveira. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. You're going to hear some never-before-discussed content on the Tick Bootcamp podcast, all thanks to Nicole. Nicole was sick since she was 11 years old and was bit by a tick when she was four. She was lied to by doctors because of their pride. She was told she was in remission when, in fact, she wasn't. And she had to learn to listen to her body, take control of her health, and become a true health CEO. Over the last 31 years, Nicole's learned how to manage doctors, get the proper treatment, and listen to her body. And as a result, she's feeling great, engaged to be married, and helping others in the community. So without further ado, the health CEO and Nicole Oliveira. Hey, Nicole, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hey, Rich. We are really excited to have you, Nicole. We know you have a really cool story. We know that we're going to jive really well with you as a former Northeasterner, but you're not a Northeasterner anymore. So talk to us about uh, currently where you're living. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be speaking with you guys as well. I'm currently living in Charlotte, North Carolina. So what, what caused a Northeastern gal who used to live in the Lion Belt to move to the Southeast? Oh, um, good question. So I uh, was born and raised in Northern New Jersey and uh, went to college in Pennsylvania, moved back to New Jersey, um, to the New York City area, and then was living in New York City at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, my fiance and I had an apartment in Hell's Kitchen and decided it wasn't a great place for us to be living during COVID and a lot of unknowns. So we left and we spent a lot of time between my parents' house and his parents' house um, for quite some time in 2020. And eventually while we were still working for remote, we decided to put our stuff in storage and go on a little bit of a road trip. So we stayed on the East Coast and we traveled to different cities staying with family and at Airbnbs along the way and kept coming back to Charlotte and eventually fell in love um, and kind of didn't really envision ourselves going back to New York City and decided to take a chance and move to Charlotte. That's a really cool story and it's a really cool journey that you guys are on. Thank you. So let's talk about what it was like to live in the Lime Belt, right? You were in three of the most tick endemic states uh, in the country. You, um, you grew up in New Jersey, uh, which is a tick endemic state. You uh, spent some time in Pennsylvania going to college, which actually has the highest Lyme disease rate in the U.S., at least it did last year. And of course, you spent time in New York, uh, which is the birthplace of Lyme disease, because as you know, the ticks that were ultimately dragged and, um, and where the Lyme bacteria was discovered was actually on Long Island. So you, um, you were in all the places where you could probably get Lyme disease. So talk to us about what your experience was like growing up in New Jersey. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what you knew about ticks, but let's talk about first what it was like growing up in New Jersey. Yeah. So I had a great childhood. Um, I lived in the suburbs I spent a lot of time, um, I guess, outside um, in my parents' backyard. Uh, my parents would take us to the beach. Um, and I was just very involved in different 
activities. I think my parents gave us a lot of opportunity. They encouraged myself as well as my brothers to try different sports. Um, I think I tried everything until I really found my groove in dance. Um, they took us different places to experience um, uh, different vacations. We spent a lot of time at the Jersey Shore and such. So I was definitely exposed. Um, I didn't really know too much about Lyme growing up, um, even though I lived in such state of uh, high Lyme exposure. So let's talk about that for a second, Nicole. So when you say you didn't know much about Lyme, did you know anything about Lyme disease? Had you heard the word Lyme? Did you know anyone who had Lyme disease? I mean, what, what did you know? I can't say that I knew much um, until my initial diagnosis at 12 years old. So I think my young childhood, I, I don't really remember much. I don't remember talking about it. Um, at the age of 12, I was experiencing a lot of migraines and chronic headaches, which is what I eventually, um, my mom had been taking me to the doctor a bunch of different times. I saw numerous different specialists until I was finally diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I think that was the first time I had heard about it and started to learn about it. Okay. Let's, let's walk it back a little bit. So um, it's my understanding that you actually had acute Lyme disease at the age of four. That was the first time that your family was aware that you were coming in contact with ticks and you had a bullseye rash that your doctor actually had to look up in a medical book. So talk about that experience and what you remember about that four-year-old uh, contact with Lyme disease. Yeah, sure. So I can't say that I recall the experience um, since I was four. It's mainly from retelling the story that I have the memory of it. Um, and the story really has um, become, I guess, a strong memory as I've gone through my Lyme journey and have recalled the different exposure points. So I was actually in the Poconos in Pennsylvania on a camping trip with my aunt and uncle at the time. They returned me to my parents and I came home with um, your traditional bullseye rash. My mom at the time thought it was just a bruise. Maybe I had fallen at the playground playing, didn't think too much of it. I was in tow with her to the pediatrician's office for one of my brothers when um, he opened his textbook and he said, this looks like it could be a bullseye rash and identified it. Um, so I think this would have been the early 90s. And I had a short stint on amoxicillin that I actually never finished because I broke out in hives. My parents brought me to the emergency room. They told them to just stop the treatment. And if I complained of any aches or pains to bring me back to the doctor. So you, um, you are truly growing up in this tech endemic community, right? You're, um, you're coming in contact with ticks uh, before you're even aware of how to protect yourself or what a tick would do. And you have this window of time between when you're four and 12, where um, you think 
everything's okay, right? And your family thinks everything's okay. And then you finally get a diagnosis uh, several years later. So talk to us about what it was like from a health perspective between the ages of four and when you finally got your, your diagnosis. Yeah, I think I lived a very normal childhood. I was a great student, um, never really missed school, was generally pretty healthy. Um, my mom says I would bump and bruise a little bit easier than my brothers, but just kind of chalked it up to she's a girl um, versus boys being a little bit tougher. And as, as I, as I have to, as a dad of four daughters, I, uh, I, I have to challenge you on that. I do not find boys to be tougher than girls, but we'll debate that another time. We'll debate that another time. Um, we, so then I am now 12. I'm experiencing a lot of chronic headaches and migraines. Um, my mom, who I would say is my biggest health advocate, she continued to bring me to the pediatrician. Um, at this time, I had a different pediatrician than when I was four. Um, she had a lot of excuses. I was a girl. I was anxious about going to a new school. My mom eventually brought me to see a neurologist who um, did a, many, many different tests. Um, my Lyme test came back positive. Um, he did not know what to do. Neither did the pediatrician. Um, so that sent us on a different road of finding more answers. And I think this was really the, the pivotal moment of talking about Lyme and learning more about Lyme. Okay, so you have this window of time, about eight years, where you're kind of kind of a sickly kid. Um, so you you have uh, you know clearly a compromised immune system. It's different than your brother, so it's being sort of rationalized as as a gender difference rather than an, an experiential or a or an illness difference. Um, and then you finally get your diagnosis when you're twelve. Uh, you know your Lyme disease diagnosis now. Looking back, do you think you were being reinfected with tick bites in that window of time? Or do you believe that your body was essentially managing this Lyme infection that you had suffered when you were four and that it finally, um, it finally became chronic when you were 12? I think the latter. I think that it was um, just manifesting in my body. I as much as I was living in New Jersey and was definitely exposed, I wasn't somebody that was super outdoorsy. Um, so I think that it, I don't think that I was reinfected or rebit. I think it was really, my body was able to live somewhat normally. And this was the breaking point. So Nicole, one of the questions that I have is, how do you know you weren't coming in contact with other ticks? unless you had engaged in some behavioral changes where you were checking yourself regularly or your parents were checking yourself regularly. So were you checking every night? Were you checking yourself a couple of times a day? Were your parents checking you? Or is it possible that you were in fact getting reinfected maybe time and time again, and you just didn't know because ticks are really good at hiding and they're really good at doing what they do and then leaving us before we even know about it? I guess I really don't know. Um, I do think that my mom was checking myself and my brothers. Um, I don't think that it was every day. It was mainly if she knew we were out 
side in the yard or in a high risk situation where we may have been exposed. She was checking our doing a skin check of our bodies in the evening. But Nicole, isn't that really the fallacy that we have? We all think that the only time that we can get uh, bitten by a tick is if we're going hiking or we're going out. And as it turns out, what the research shows is that almost 80% of the people who have Lyme disease have come in contact with a tick in their own backyard. You are right about that. So, so of course, that's, you know, that's really one of, the, one of the questions that I always like to ask folks when we're talking about reinfection, right? Because if you had said to me, hey, Rich, right after I got bitten at four, my parents did a ton of research and they became you know, super educated and we changed our entire lifestyle so that we were doing all the things you need to do to make sure that you're finding ticks on you if they're there. We're checking twice a day, which by the way is something I do every day, twice a day. And we'll talk more about that later. Um, then I'd say to you, well, then you probably have a pretty good gauge on whether or not you had come in contact with ticks again, if you were doing that right. But if you really weren't doing the checking, perhaps you were, you know, you were, your body was managing the, um, the infection from when you were four, or perhaps you got reinfected just before you got, you got sick. And, um, or it was a combination of the two, right? Could very well be a combination of the two. And don't think that I ever will know. Um, and I don't think that at this point going back, it probably matters because I don't know if it would have changed the trajectory. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it really matters for you, Nicole, because you know, your, your experience is your experience, right? But I think it may matter for our listeners who may want to change the way they're behaving and the way they're perhaps educating their children so that they don't have to have the same experience that you've had. But it certainly doesn't make a difference on your journey because, um, because you did get sick and you were a little girl and you really couldn't protect yourself. Uh, and I know your parents were really good people who wanted to give you an enriching experience and they gave you all the things you could have and all the different experiences you could have. And, and unfortunately, they weren't in a position where their community and their educational system gave them the tools they needed to protect themselves or their children, right? We can change that together. And that's part of the reason why I'm exploring that with you. So talk to us about how your life was affected by all of the different illnesses that you were, you were dealing with during that window of time between your, your acute contact with Lyme at four and ultimately the, the development of the chronic illness at 12. Sure. So I think that, um, by like elementary school age years, I don't think that those were greatly impacted. I have memories of going to school, um, being there every day, um, but fast forward to um, my sixth, seventh, eighth grade years of middle school. These were the years when I was really sick, um, having chronic migraines. And I was, I was missing half of the school year because I couldn't function and couldn't make it to class. So what was your vision for your future at that time? Did you, did you have some goal that you had set for yourself or some dream about what your future was going to be like? What were you being drawn toward and how were all of these illnesses, especially these migraines affecting your ability to pursue these uh, dreams? Yeah. So I think at that point, um, my dreams were to be a healthy 12 year old. Um, experience everything that my peers were experiencing, being able to go to school, um, engaging in after school extracurricular activities, and um, 
the Lyme had very much slowed this down. I saw myself continuing through middle school and college and uh, getting a full education all the way through. So what impact did this have on you socially? Meaning, uh, were there things that your peers were doing that you couldn't do because you were too sick? Um, yeah, I I would say simply going to school was one of them, um, showing up and being a student. And then also um, after school activities like dance class and soccer practice and um, religious classes, so how did your peers treat you? Were there, were there uh, events that, you know, that they had that you weren't invited to? Uh, were there things that you were missing out on? Or um, do you think your friends were as understanding as they could be? Um, good question. I don't really uh, remember or recall feeling like I was missing out on social events at this point in my life. I think I was still being included. Um, I think I was able to show up sometimes and maybe not other times. But I don't think um, from a social standpoint that my peers stopped being friends with me. I would still see them in the days that I was going to school or participating in dance class after school. Let's talk about your identity. What impact did this illness have on your identity at that stage in your life? Meaning all the school you were missing and the migraines you're having and all those challenges. Did you see yourself as the sick kid? Um, at that point in my life, I didn't. I felt like I was sick for a short period of time. Um, but as I went through treatment, um, I was I was rebounding and I was reintegrating, um, going back to school, going to dance class, um, going, hanging out with friends after school. So talk to us about how your illness ultimately came to a remission the first time. How long after your diagnosis when you were 12, did you finally manage or, or get into a position where your body could manage its illness again? So after my initial diagnosis, I um, was talking to people in the community, or I should say my mom was at this point talking to people in the community. And I was referred to see a Lyme literate doctor based in Northern New Jersey. I was under her care for about a year or so. And I did a year of oral antibiotics um, at this point, I was only diagnosed with Lyme disease and I had, I hadn't been tested for any co-infection. So I didn't know about this part of the disease. Um, she kept drawing my blood, measuring the Lyme levels. After a year of antibiotics, I was told I was in remission. However, I was still very symptomatic and was still suffering from headaches and migraines. So Nicole, you, you said that the pediatrician that you were going to and the neuropediatrician that had diagnosed you didn't know what to do with the Lyme disease when you were when you were diagnosed with Lyme. Did they do anything at all? Did they give you any treatment at all before you went to the doctor in northern New Jersey? The neurologist was the one who diagnosed me and sent me back to the pediatrician. Um, she put me on a round of oral antibiotics. I 
can't exactly remember what I was put on, but I had a very bad reaction to it. And as this was happening was when I was um, being led to the LLMD. So you had a lot of challenges with antibiotics, right? You had antibiotics when you were four and you couldn't finish the full course of antibiotics when you were four because you were allergic to it or you had a bad reaction. You're now 12, you get your diagnosis and the pediatrician puts you on antibiotics and you have a bad reaction again. I'm assuming you didn't finish that round of antibiotics either. Yep. And now you pivot over to this LLMD in Northern New Jersey and you're now given a full year's course of antibiotics. What antibiotics did you take and how did you receive or use these antibiotics differently than you did the first two times? And why were you able to finish this full course when you weren't able to the first two times? Oh, um, is it, I forget exactly what I was put on at that point. Um, I think that why I was more successful, um, this round was I was put on something that was going to treat the Lyme. Um, and it was an aggressive dose. Um, I was also, um, now taking probiotics, which I know is really important to help, um, balance the high dose of antibiotics I was taking. I think in looking back, um, to when I was four, when I was treated that the hives were a form of a Herx reaction and I probably stopped them too soon. And now I was armed with a Lyme literate doctor that was along with me on this journey. So you think the difference between the first two courses of antibiotics and now this third course of antibiotics is that you had a Lyme literate doctor who knew how to help you prepare to manage the challenges with, with um, antibiotics, including giving you a probiotic and letting you know that Herxing was a part of this process and that you should be prepared for it and that we should manage the antibiotic dosage based on how your body was receiving it and how you were detoxing. Correct. So talk to us about how things went after you finished that course of antibiotics. You said that she said, you're in remission. Good luck. Be yeah. on your way. And, but you said you were still uh, symptomatic. I was still symptomatic at this point. Um, it was great to hear that I was in remission. Um, I ended up back to the neurologist with, I guess, not many answers of, I thought at this point, the headaches and the migraines were a symptom of the Lyme, but now I'm being told the Lyme is in remission and I'm still suffering from chronic headaches and migraines, which makes it incredibly hard to function day to day. Um, he ended up treating me and seeing me through college graduation. He had me on an antidepressant, um, Pamelor that would help manage my migraines and chronic headaches. I would still have breakthrough headaches or migraines um, from time to time, but this was one way to keep those symptoms at bay. And I would also say during this time frame of my life through high school and college, I remember these to be some sick years. I had lots of random different symptoms, would see specialist after specialist, 
I would always mention on my new patient intake forms that I have Lyme disease in the notes section or the other section often would hear, oh, you have Lyme and they would move on, but never really putting two and two together of why my joint pain could be related to the Lyme disease or my gut issues were related to the Lyme disease. Looking back, I mean, it seems pretty clear now, knowing what you know, obviously, and and going through the journey being where you are today, that you weren't better from Lyme disease, your migraines and your headaches and your anxiety and all these symptoms that you were still having were still connected to your tick-borne illness and probably co-infections. I'm betting we're going to learn as we get further along your journey here. But do you think that this Lyme literate doctor should have tested you for other tick-borne illnesses and really dug deeper rather than saying, oh, you still have headaches and bad migraines, but you're, you're in remission, move on. That seems like a really poor move for a Lyme literate doctor to do. Yes, I think at the time that we didn't know anything about co-infections and there were no tests available for her to test me for co-infections. So this was, again, we're in the 90s we're talking about, right? Yeah. So for perspective here, it's not like, you know, we're, we're in 2020 when we have a more, more awareness and testing for these other co-infections. So you go on and you go on with high school, you go on with college. Talk to us about other symptoms because you mentioned that you had these debilitating migraines still and that you were even put on some medication for antidepressants. And do you think that you were really depressed? Or do you think that it was Lyme really causing you to be depressed, either through neuroinflammation or just a symptom of the Lyme disease? Yeah, I don't think that I was depressed. Um, I the, I was being put on an antidepressant to help manage my chronic migraines and headaches. Um, but I do think that these were all symptoms that were related to the co-infections that were gone that were being untreated and um, not diagnosed. So Nicole, what other symptoms did you have from the time you were quote unquote in remission, not with your pediatric Lyme litter doctor until the point of really college? It sounds like some other health issues came in. So what other symptoms were you having that looking back could have been signs that the Lyme was still there and active? Um, I had chronic strep throat, chronic ear infections, um, a lot of gut issues, um, joint pain, um, like trying to recall all of the different specialists I had seen during those years. Um, and then headaches, like, I feel like those, that has always been my number one symptom, um, along with fatigue. So you're going to specialist after specialist, after specialist, you have a history of Lyme disease. You had a bullseye rash when you were four, which means you were infected with Lyme disease. You never felt better from Lyme disease and you're still exhibiting classic Lyme disease symptoms, but none of these doctors ever think back and say, hmm, maybe she really wasn't healed from Lyme disease. That's correct. And I, during this time, in addition to seeing all these specialists, I was also going through a ton of different tests. Um, I've had multiple MRIs at this point, CAT scans. I had a spinal tap. Um, tons of blood work. I've had colonoscopies, endoscopies. I, you name it, they've tested me and would often come back with just blanket diagnosis. 
So essentially they were treating your symptoms and they weren't digging deep to figure out what was really going on. And you were just, your body was managing it and you were doing your best to live a normal life despite being so sick. For sure. So walk us through now your high school years and your college years, because what, in what way did your illness impact your ability to succeed with your, your education? Meaning how, how did it impact you getting good grades and being able to understand and learn in school? And also in, in what ways did it affect you socially as well? Um, I think during this time, I still, I don't know how much it impacted me, um, just since this had really been a part of who I was for so long. Um, through, all throughout college and high school, I was able to go to class, um, obviously some days feeling better than other days. Um, I was very social. I was involved in high school on, um, in the marching band and key club. Um, I was still going to religious classes after school, um, in college, I, have very fond memories of having a great social life, um, living away from home for the first time. So I think that it felt normal, but in between all of these normal, like I would come down with strep throat or an ear infection or the flu, and I would be knocked out for a little bit. So like a few days, a week, two weeks, and then I would still resume being a student and going out with my friends. So Nicole, I'm curious, you had two younger brothers. I think you're, you're, you had a brother that was two years younger than you and a brother that was four years younger than you, I believe, right? Yep. That's correct. So growing up, were there, looking back, were there any differences in, although you were managing it and you were still doing extracurricular activities and you were still going to school and doing okay, were there any differences you saw in how you were behaving growing up versus how your brothers were behaving, knowing that you were fighting an illness all along and they weren't? I think there were a lot of similarities between the three of us. Um, But one thing that I think that was differentiating was I always seemed to be sick or I would get sick very easily. Whereas they just kept going with their studies and with their sports. So what point did this start to interfere with your day-to-day life? Because it sounds like you went on, you graduated high school, and then you went into college. Talk to us about that first, actually. Did, did you, were you able to graduate from college? I did. Um, I took an extra semester to graduate. I took a little bit of time, switched my major, um, tried to figure out what I really wanted to do. Um, but I don't think that it was, the extra semester was related to being sick. Um, I graduated with a degree in marketing and after college moved back home to Northern New Jersey, lived with mom and dad for a while. Um, I was working for advertising agencies in the city. And um, I think that this was a really pivotal time in my life. I was enjoying um, being a young adult I was working during the week, commuting into New York City, um, spending the weekends with my friends. I was also working out a a ton. Um, At one point, I belonged to three different gyms. I was waking up at like 
5.30 in the morning to make it to the gym for 6 a.m., work out, shower, head into Manhattan to go to work. Um, so I think I was living very um, extreme life at this point. And this is when I really noticed some of my s- symptoms starting to creep back up. Um, some strange symptoms. The headaches were returning again. Um, I saw a neurologist once again. Now, not this was different from my pediatric neuro- neurologist now that I'm in my 20s. Um, also somebody who uh, knew that I had Lyme disease, um, was treating the symptom, not really getting to the cause of everything. Then I started to experience other things. And at this point, my mom had recommended, Hey, like maybe it's time to explore some, like explore why you're experiencing all of these different symptoms. Um, she had been referred to an infectious disease doctor who came highly recommended. I called and made an appointment, um, waited six months to see her. And this was really the pivotal moment of when I was diagnosed with the co-infections and everything started to come together of why I had been feeling so sick for so many years. So. Nicole, I, I just, I'm curious what your thoughts are on a couple of things here before we go on with your story. So when you were in college, it sounds like you were managing it better than when you got out of college. And I think, would you agree because your stress level and your, and I guess it sounds like you're really pushing it pretty hard when you got out of college, working in Manhattan, getting up early, possibly over-exercising, and those things put your body in a compromised state where the Lyme started to come back out and be more aggressive with your headaches and other symptoms. Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um, I don't think that I had, the only thing I had on my plate um, while I was in college was really being a student. Um, I did work part-time jobs and interned, but I don't think that I was carrying the same stress load as I was post-college. And I think that I also was maybe getting more sleep at that point in my life, Um, even though I was a college student and I probably had strange sleeping hours. Um, I think I was generally getting more sleep and pushing my body less. Nicole, what are your thoughts on the exercise? Because you mentioned you, you had three gym memberships, you were exercising before work every single day and then traveling into New York city and working as, you know, at at an ad agency. So it has to be stressful working in Manhattan has to be stressful working in an ad agency and now you're working out every morning. So do you think that the exercise was helping you stay healthy and keeping the bacteria at bay or the, and, and the pathogens at bay? Or do you think that you were over-exercising, which led to a compromised body, which led to now all of these symptoms starting to pop up again? Which do you think was happening there? I, I think that I was exercising and helping um, keep my body healthy in one sense. Um, I was also eating pretty well during the week. Um, while I was exercising, I was training for Spartan races at this point in my, my life. Um, so I think that like, there was a sense of healthy. I think I was probably, um, burning out of not getting enough sleep and then having a social life on the weekends and not really sticking to a routine, um, consistently 
day over day. So the reason I ask is because a lot of leading Lyme doctors that we've interviewed and, and talked with have told us that when you're dealing with chronic Lyme, whether you know it or not, and you had it, but didn't know it at that point, that your exercise is good for you, but to a certain level. Once you over-exercise, you're actually hurting your body and allowing chronic Lyme to become worse because you're overexerting yourself. So looking back, it sounds like you think that you were, it was actually helping you and you weren't overdoing it. Is that what your thoughts are? Yeah, I think that um, at that point, that's how I, I was feeling good from exercising. Um, knowing what I know today, I definitely live a little bit more of a balanced life. Um, and I think that that is really key in um, maintaining a healthy life. Um, but I think that it was kind of just a culmination of everything of exercising, of um, working at an ad agency, commuting into New York City, um, having a social life on the weekends with my girlfriends that really just snowballed. And I understand some other symptoms started to pop up that were possibly new right before you got diagnosed again for the second time. And, you know, some things maybe with, with your feet and night sweats. So can you talk just about some of these additional symptoms you were experiencing and what you thought they were? Yeah, so um, the foot pain was definitely one of the strange symptoms. Um, obviously, now I know it's from having co-infections. At the time, I was going to sneaker shop after sneaker shop after sneaker shop, trying to find a pair of sneakers that would not make my feet hurt. Um, the night sweats were also getting really bad. And I think it was a combination of some of these that um, I realized were not normal. I would wake up in the middle of the night drenched um, so much so that I would have to change. My entire bed was completely wet. And this was happening night after night after night. Now, you know enough at this point to connect those symptoms with co-infections? No. So what made your mom, I think, I believe you said that your mom realized you were getting worse and she found the infectious disease doctor for you to go see. So what made your mom want you to go back to see an infectious disease doctor? Did she believe and did you believe that this was Lyme again? Did that, did that realization come back into your minds? Yeah, I think that it was always there in the back of our mind. Every time I would see a specialist, I would raise this as a concern that this was part of my health history and who I am. And I think that this infectious disease doctor was no different than any other specialist I had seen throughout my teenage years. And it was a thought that this could be the Lyme and it, it could maybe um, be relapse um, or maybe something else, but it, it's not normal to have these symptoms. So we were really looking for answers. And walk us through what it was like seeing this infectious disease doctor, because probably if I had to guesstimate 99% of the people on this podcast have told us that when they see an infectious disease doctor who's supposed to specialize in infectious diseases like Lyme disease, they were treated very poorly and not properly diagnosed with Lyme and or co-infections. So the good news is I was properly diagnosed with an active Lyme infection. And this was when I received my diagnosis for Bartonella and Babesia and finally felt like this is it. We found it. We, well, I have an answer. 
and I'm going to treat it and I'm going to get better. I was put on a very aggressive protocol of herbals, supplements, um, and numerous different antibiotics um, all at once. And it was very hard on my body. So Nicole, when you said you were on herbs, supplements, and antibiotics, which is, again, uh, you're, you're very fortunate, I think, well, fortunate and unfortunate, but you're fortunate that an infectious disease doctor diagnosed you because generally they're not the ones that have diagnosed people in the past that we've interviewed. But it also sounds like that you were treated with herbs and natural medicine from the same doctor, or did you, did you get diagnosed and go to another doctor with this treatment? She, um, she was an infectious disease doctor and specialized in Lyme, um, was, had a lot of um, material about Lyme and how to treat it and incorporated some of these natural remedies into my protocol. So let's talk about specifically, if you remember, do you remember any specific herbs that you were on during this time? Um, this is a while ago. You might be cha- challenging my memory. I think <laughs> um, a, a Bart, a Bart, yes. a Bart one, a Bart two. Yeah. Um, some of those. And at this time I was working up. Um, she had, told me that I would do one drop one day, two drops the next day, three drops the next day and keep working up until I was up to the, the full dropper, I believe. And now looking back, I know my body is not handling it well and I should never have worked up that quickly. Um, I went from being pretty sick when I walked into her office to completely bedridden within months. Um, I was not functioning. And I think within four or five months, she had mentioned to me that according to my blood work, I was in remission, but my symptoms told me another story. So the ABAR, was that Byron White's formula, do you recall? I think that's, that's so, and the reason I'm asking is we've had a lot of people tell us, Nicole, that when they do these herbs in combination with antibiotics and supplements, that they are really powerful. And uh, doctors will sort of guide them to go a little bit too fast. And we've heard one drop can make you hurt so bad that you can't get out of bed. And it sounds like you started with one drop of ABART plus antibiotics, plus a ton of supplements. And that still made you really sick, right? Yeah. I was actually doing multiple herbal droppers all at the same time. So it was the perfect storm. And did this doctor who is now a Lyme literate infectious disease doctor, who is a specialist, right? I guess in New Jersey, right? That's correct. Yeah. Did she tell you that you're probably going to hurt? Did you know what a Herxheimer reaction was at this point? At this point, I don't believe that I knew what a, a Herxheimer reaction was. So this went on for four to five months. And you mentioned that as soon as you started treatment and by the end of it, you were bed bound. What were you thinking and what was that relationship with, with your doctors and also your family? Because I'm sure your parents were helping you as well as you were getting worse and worse and worse while getting treatment for something that was supposed to help you feel better. And you didn't even know what a Herx was. Yeah. So I think when I first started seeing her, I was so hopeful. I waited so long for my appointment to be able 
to be seen. I then received a proper co-infection diagnosis and finally thought I had my answer. Um, and I felt like, okay, this is it. I have my protocol. I know what to do. I'm going to do it, follow it, and I'm going to be better. And I'm going to be able to move on and feel great. Um, as my health was declining, I was in between jobs or I was changing jobs. I had resigned from one agency and had just started at a new advertising agency in the midst of all of this. And, um, I was still traveling into Manhattan during the week and on weekends was completely bed bound would sleep, um, through breakfast, through lunch, through dinner. Like I was just not functioning and kept going to my follow-up appointments, expressing how I was, my health was rapidly declining at this point. And now wasn't really getting any answers of what we're going to do next. It was more, well, your blood work says you're fine and you're better. So at this point, um, as I mentioned earlier, my mom is my biggest health advocate. She continued to really push for answers. I think more than than I did at that point. I wasn't, these were some of my darkest days that I was entering and really felt defeated that I thought I had a protocol and now I'm even sicker than when I started. So at this point, I went for a second opinion, um, another top LLMD in Manhattan, um, somehow was able to get in and see him um, quicker than being put on the wait list. Um, thank God, because I was not doing well. And at this point, um, he didn't do any blood work. I saw him for my initial consultation and he said, I know exactly what is wrong with you. And I want you to go have a Hickman IV put in next week. Um, he chose a Hickman over a pick line, knowing that it wasn't going to be a short course of IV treatment. And so he wanted something a little bit more stable, but he knew that it was also, I guess, temporary in a sense. It wasn't something I needed forever. And I was starting IV antibiotics, the orals, we're done. Um, this, this was really when I started to learn what a Herxheimer was, the importance of detoxing, the importance of trying to build up my immune system with, um, vitamins and supplements. And, um, I think this is really when I started on my journey of recovery. Okay. So Nicole, I want to back up a little bit here. So when you were with your infectious disease doctor and she was treating you with the herbs and supplements and the antibiotics, and you mentioned you were on it for five months. Did you just believe that when you were done with treatment, you were going to be cured? Because I know for me at least, and when I'm, if I'm going through a treatment and I'm getting worse and worse and worse, I'm going to be raising red flags left and right. So were you just so sick and so desperate that you finally found somebody who, who legitimized what you had, gave it several names with these co-infections that you just put this blind faith into that doctor to think that even though you were getting so much worse, you would get better when you were done? Yeah, I think that I 
put all my eggs in one basket at that point because I had an answer. It, she was a specialist and she finally was able to, to help me. Um, in comparison to all of these doctors I had set, seen in the years leading up to this. And the reason I ask, when I, when I say I would raise red flags left and right, I mean, I mean now, right? I went through a very similar experience in the past. And I think many people have done this and they've let a doctor treat them probably for a little bit too long, knowing they're getting worse and worse and worse and should have spoken up for themselves and said, this isn't working sooner, you know, sooner. So do you believe looking back that you let that go a little bit too long? And would you caution people listening that they know their bodies best and they should speak up and tell their doctors when it's not working and not, and not just sort of silently let themselves suffer until their doctor says they're in remission, which wasn't the case clearly. And now you're, now you're devastated because you don't, you don't know what to do next. Yeah. I think that that is something I've learned on this journey is nobody knows my body better than myself. And I was raising the questions and the red flags at the time. Um, maybe not to the extent I should have been looking back um, because I continued to go through the protocol of what I was being told to do in the hopes that I would be better. Um, but I've gotten to the point of knowing I'm my biggest advocate and I've built a team around myself of knowing my body, listening to my doctor, coming up with the protocol that's best for myself. Um, together with my doctor, not just having the doctor listed out for me, but it took me a, a while to get to that point. And, and, and it, you're not alone in that. It, it takes many of us a really long time and, and even longer than what you went through to get to that point. And it took me far longer than it took you. So it sounds like when you left this infectious disease specialist is really a powerful growth in your journey where you realize you had to get into the driver's seat and take control, which you did and we'll get to. But I'm also just observing a lot of patterns here in your in your story. And when you were four, you were bit, you were bit by a tick, you had a bullseye rash, you were treated with amoxicillin, I believe you said, right? And yep. you were allergic to amoxicillin. So oh, you get a rash, they stop, they, they stop treating you knowing a bullseye rash means Lyme disease and let us know if she has symptoms, which again probably is a doctor's pride and not knowing enough instead of instead of being curious to see what what else can we do. And to your point, possibly that was a reaction or a rash from a Herx, right? And now that's a really good observation. Was it an allergic reaction or was it a rash from a Herx? We'll, never, we'll probably never know the answer to that. Then when you're 12 and you get diagnosed again, you treat with antibiotics, have a really extreme reaction and they pull you off. You go to another specialist and this this pattern of doctors sort of doing what they can and then telling you you're better or you're in remission, right? When you were 12, the doctor said you're in remission. You weren't in remission. But I think it's the pride of the doctor getting in the way from helping you get to where you could have been when you were younger. You know, do you think that's something that you went through in your journey with these doctors is they didn't want to say, I don't know, you should go see somebody else. Or you know what, this is beyond my area of expertise. You should go see somebody else, but you're clearly still sick. And I think that's what was missing when you were younger. And unfortunately, your doctors wouldn't do that with you. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that definitely was the missing link. Um, I think uh, I was seeing specialists and they, I think maybe their pride got in the way of th this was as far as they could go with treating me and didn't know what was next. Um, and instead of referring me out or digging a little bit deeper, everything pointed to you're better. 
um, even though I was still symptomatic and not truly better. So I do want to circle back. What antibiotics were you on when you talked about you were on the ABART and the ABAPS? What what antibiotics were you on with the infectious disease doctor before going to the Lyme specialist in New York City? I did a lot of um, oral antibiotics during this time. I believe I was on um, Doxy. I believe it was Mepron, the yellow liquid. Abicia, yes. Um, I like not really sure of a a cocktail of antibiotics. Many. Yes. I was for sure on a cocktail of oral antibiotics. Um, I was also doing penicillin injections at this point. So to answer your question from before, I went my entire childhood saying I was allergic to amoxicillin. I probably wasn't allergic to penicillin, it was most likely a Herx reaction. Um, I did a crash course in testing to do these penicillin injections at home. Um, the nurse, the nurses trained my mom to give my give for her to give me injections at home. Um, and I was also doing a cocktail of herbals at this point too. So now walk us through when you're seeing this doctor in New York City. It sounds like he had seen this a thousand times and he knew, yep, you're still not better. You need real serious IV treatment here. And he put you on a Hickman versus a pick line you said earlier. So walk us through for our listeners who don't know what's the difference between a Hickman and a pick line. Um, a pick line is, uh, an IV line that goes in through your arm and a Hickman is, um, an IV line that goes in through your chest that feeds directly into your heart um, with the tube coming out versus a port is um, under your skin. So now you're going on IV antibiotics, it sounds like. And you said that at this point is when you really learn about herxing, detoxing, and how you had to build your immune system back up after being sick for so long and being on antibiotics for so long. Now, did you learn this through self-discovery or these things that were told to you by this, this Lyme specialist in Manhattan that then prompted you to go and dig deeper and learn based on the prompt from the doctor? Um, it was definitely a combination. I learned a lot from him. Um, but it was also through my own digging at this point. I, this point in my life, I started to go into dark, deep rabbit holes of the internet, um, and looking for my own answers that I felt like I wasn't getting through the doctor. Um, I was also now going to the doctor's office on a weekly basis to have my dressing changed. So I was now having conversations with the nurse who also was going through, um, Lyme disease herself at this point. So it was a lot of knowledge sharing with another patient And, um, this was when I really started to discover the importance of detoxing and, um, supporting my body, uh, for what was happening through the antibiotics. I was doing a lot of, um, pulsing of antibiotics. So what I mean by that is one day on one day off, or maybe some other combination of days on it versus days off. I was also, doing, um, vitamin bags, um, glutathione, a lot of different, 
um, vitamins and supplements through the bag in addition to the, the antibiotics. So you're getting a lot of supportive therapies through the IV, like glutathione and, and vitamins to help your body recover and rebuild after all the damage and also not be so, so devastated from the aggressive IV antibiotic treatment, it sounds like. Yes. And I found tremendous relief from some of these um, other bags, like found tremendous relief from a vitamin bag, from saline bags um, to help build me back up. Now, Nicole, were you still working at this point? I mean, you're going through, you have a Hickman in your chest. You're going through aggressive IV antibiotic treatment. Tell me you're not working still. I'm still working and still commuting two to two and a half hours one way in and out of Manhattan. Um, I gave up working out. So that was one thing that went and my social life was non-existent during this time. So I found like, I guess, relief from going to work as difficult as it was. It was my form of being social and interacting with other people. Um, I spent my weekends in bed and would rebuild and look forward to going to work on Monday. So how long were you on this IV treatment for in New York city with a specialist? I would, I had my Hickman IV for about a year, almost to the day. Um, towards the end, I say like the bat, the last four weeks or so I was not doing any treatments and throughout those 11 months or so, there was times where I was taking breaks from antibiotics to see how my body was responding. Um, I cycled through a lot of different drugs, um, would try one, try something else, sometimes go back to a drug I had done previously. Um, but it was about a year of very aggressive treatment. And how were you fear, feeling throughout this year? It's, you know, were you, was it a, a constant herx? Were you having some breakthroughs where you were feeling like, wow, I'm feeling a little bit better. You know, what, what was the overall assessment of your health throughout this one year window? I'd say the first half of it, um, was awful. Those, I think I still felt, um, a little hopeless of here I am again. I hope that this works. I'm being told that there's a plan and that I will feel better. Um, and I think that I started to see some breakthroughs on the second half of it. And I would have a, a breakthrough of feeling a little bit better, but then go back to not feeling great again. So when you left the infectious disease doctor in Jersey and then went to this Lyme specialist in New York City, you were obviously having a really aggressive Herx in Jersey. Were you feeling better or some relief because you changed the plan and it wasn't as aggressive, but you still weren't feeling better overall? Um, I think that I was devastated at the time um, because I saw, I went for a second opinion. I heard from the doctor, I can help you. And I always knew that IV antibiotics were my next, like an option 
because the oral antibiotics were not working, I didn't want to face the reality of that was what was ahead of me and how that would impact my life. So I think initially I was very devastated that this, I had to have a Hickman IV in, I was doing up to four infusions in a day. Um, my life very much revolved around, um, what time I like woke up, what time I needed to take my morning drugs or medicine, my afternoon, my evening and bedtime. So I guess what I'm asking though, is when you were in Jersey treating, you were just using antibiotics with herbs to kill and you were kill, kill, killing. Then when you went to New York city, you were doing a lot of supportive therapies as well to rebuild. So do you think that you were seeing a little bit of relief because of the added in detox and the added in immune boosting? Or do you think that the IV kill protocols and the IV antibiotics were just so aggressive that it was really about the same compared to what you were doing in New Jersey? I think initially, um, early on, it was, it was, it was hard. It was definitely the same. I w was feeling really shitty and week by week, I started to feel a little bit of a relief. Um, I started to identify things that were helping, um, definitely different ways to detox that helped. Um, like what specifically getting, though, Nicole, can you give us some specific examples of what was helping you in the moment? Um, I think that in the moment, if I remember back, um, the saline bags and vitamin bags were definitely some of the tools that I kept in my back pocket that would really help me have a good or better day. So I, if I knew I had, let's say a family member's birthday or something that I needed to plan for, if I did a saline bag the day before I knew it would give me a little bit of a boost, even though I still didn't feel great. So now at the end of this one year window, you had some ups and downs, but you were still really sick, but you just had some new tools to help you get through some special events like a birthday party, et cetera. So what made you stop treating at the end of that one year window? And what did you do next? So at the end of the year, one year window, um, when my Hickman was removed, I was feeling the best I had felt in years. Um, I was, I don't know if I was necessarily in remission, but I felt great. Like I was able to enjoy life again and be able to uh, go to work, go to social events. Um, it was a weird time because I was sick for a while and now was trying to navigate like how to re-enter life um, and not just dive into the deep end. Um, I started dating again. Um, and I was still work. I was now living closer to Manhattan. So, um, my commute was a lot shorter. I was in Weehawken. So it was a lot easier for me to stay out after work, um, for a social event and then go home. Um, but I was generally feeling a lot better. So it sounds like this was transformational. I think I, I probably misstated then your one-year window. I, and you, you said it earlier, the first half was probably hell. And then the second half of that one year, the last six months was when you started to see gradual improvement. And at the end of the one-year window, you were so feeling so well that you stopped treatment because you pretty much had your life back. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, that was definitely where I was at. Um, the Hickman, I kept it in for about four weeks after my doctor had told me I was 
I was good. He didn't think that I needed any more IV treatments. Um, I kept it in just, just to make sure, um, based on this cycle I was used to, um, there was a piece of me that was a little skeptical, but I, I felt great. So what point, I'm not sure if this is now or later, but I want to bring it up so we don't miss it. At what point did you go to your first generation line meeting in person in New York city? Is that later on or around this time of the story? Oh, that was, um, that was later on, probably like three or so years after this point that I'm okay. talking about. So we'll get to that then. So it sounds like you're doing great. And, and I'm afraid to ask, but like, did this last, did this, did this great feeling Did this, you know, wow, I'm healthy again. Did this last or did, was there a setback again? Unfortunately, it didn't fully last. Um, my headaches started to creep back in. Um, at this time, um, I finally was with an LLMD who said to me, I think you need to see a specialist. I like, I think I've gotten your Lyme and your co-infections under control. Um, I can't help you any further on the headaches and migraines. Was this a doctor in New York city? Yes. Okay. But it sounds like this is the first doctor to tell you I've helped you but um, I can't help you any further than I already have, which I think is respectable. The fact that he admitted that and referred you out rather than saying, you know what, Nicole, you're cured. You're in remission, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was, it was a very, I, I respect him. Um, I largely credit him to saving my life. And it was a great piece of advice of referring me out since he felt that he could no longer help me. So at this point, he's referring you out. Does he recommend another Lyme specialist in the tri-state area for you to, to go see and consult with? Yes. So at this point, he recommends me to see a Lyme. It's, she's an LLMD um, with a specialty in neurology. So now I'm seeing another neurologist in Manhattan um, for my headaches and migraines, um, and she's also very well-versed in Lyme, which is great. Were there any other symptoms that were back or was it just the headaches and migraines, which were your most persistent debilitating symptoms? Um, it was, I can't remember if there were any other symptoms, but my headaches and my migraines are for sure the most persistent. So I'm exploring this as an option. Um, during this time, I'm, I have appointments. I trying a few different things. I'm at the point of, um, submitting through my insurance to get Botox. And I now have a community of other people in that are experiencing Lyme, their other Lyme patients or their family members are Lyme patients. And, um, my mom is talking to somebody again, um, in the neighborhood, somebody who also suffers from Lyme and refers me to um, a specialist in New Jersey who does amino biofrequency therapy. Um, So I never actually saw Botox through, kind of stopped at that point and went a less invasive route. Amino biofrequency therapy for anybody who doesn't know, they're essentially stickers that um, go on your body in strategic locations and help repair damaged cells. 
So I see this specialist, um, little skeptical, um, of the treatment. I don't know too much about it, but I'm willing to try it. And after my first session within maybe an hour, I have a complete Herx reaction. And he warned me at the beginning of the treatment, this is what may or may not happen to you. And it's a good sign if it happens because it's, you know, it's working. And so I'm sorry to interrupt Nicole, but what I have to ask this question, what made you pivot from seeing a neurologist who was a Lyme specialist and pursuing Botox, which is a more traditional route for migraines and headaches to going to a alternative therapy, which is this immunobiofrequency therapy and jumping ship to go to, to go over to that world. Like what convinced you to leave a plan that you had in, in place to now go over to a completely different, you know, way of, of addressing your, your headaches? I think that I was a little hesitant about Botox um, from the beginning um, based on a lot of my own research and reading. Um, it works for, I think, 99% of people. Um, I was fearful of putting something into my body and being that 1% given my history with Lyme. And I, I didn't want to complicate things, especially if I had an alternative route. Um, I figured it was worth a, worth a try. Um, the worst thing that happened, it didn't work or I didn't like it. And I knew that I always had the option to go back to Botox. So do you know how this immunobiofrequency therapy works? Because you mentioned there's stickers, which I guess were placed on your head because that's where you had your persistent migraines. What is the science or the, the thought or the technology behind it that helps repair these damaged cells on the part of the body that these stickers are placed on? Um, I'm going to try my best to explain this. Um, from what I understand, there are um, some sort of like magnetic frequencies on the back of the sticker that face into your body. And there's positives and negatives and they're placed strategically in certain spots um, to repair the, the damaged tissues or wherever there's inflammation. So I focused them I, during my initial appointment. I actually didn't put any on my head at all. Um, the specialist would start at, I would lay on the bed and he would start at the top of my head, work his way down one side of my body and then back up the other and feel for inf inflammation throughout my body. And then I would flip over on my back and he'd do the same thing. And I would leave them on and basically until they fell off. So sometimes two days, um, sometimes up to five or six days and they would fall off quicker in spots that really needed more of that repairing energy. So after a few sessions and I was, I was finding relief from this, I was finding a lot of relief in my gut. A lot of my bloating had finally went down. Um, I kept saying that I felt a lot of, uh, headache pain, neck pain. Anytime anybody feels my head, they always tell me I have a lot of inflammation at the base or the crown of my head. So he started putting them on my head. I eventually started shaving the back of my head to get them into a better location and did this for, oh my gosh, I did this for quite some time. I'm going to say 
probably six to 12 months, I kept seeing him um, and would build up. So instead of going, I think I started going maybe twice a week and then I would go once a week. And I eventually was spacing my appointments out because I was starting to feel better. So you mentioned you herxed when you first got this therapy, which helped you know that it was working. So what what was the herx response you had after your first visit? Um, this might be a little TMI, but I went no such thing. I basically just I had the best poop of my life. I felt like everything came out, all of the toxins, everything. So it was really detoxing. Well, well, I guess it was helping rid all the toxins and and cleanse the your body of all of these these viruses, bacteria, pathogens, et cetera, that you've been working on fighting for your entire life. It helped you purge those toxins from your body, which you probably never experienced up until this point, it sounds like. This might've been the first time. And every, it, the first time of the amino frequency therapy was definitely the most intense. Um, and it gradually tapered off. Um, the first day I wouldn't feel great. My head would feel a little achy. I would just feel a little sluggish or flu-like, but the next day I always knew that would be my, my great day. I felt like a million bucks. I remember waking up and being like, is this what it feels to be healthy? So I'm curious to learn more. So is this, is the goal just to help repair damaged cells so your body can properly detox and remove toxins from your body? Or is this therapy also killing pathogens? It's I, from what I understand, it's mainly just to repair damaged cells and to repair them to a point of being healthy again. And you did this for six to 12 months. And really it sounds like it, it also was helping enhance your immune system, which allowed your body naturally to deal with the pathogen. So this was building up your body, repairing cells. And then your immune system was doing what it was designed to do, kill and purge, right? Yes. So were you doing anything else throughout the six to 12 month window when you were doing the immune, immunobiofrequency therapy? Was this the sole therapy you were doing or were you consulting with other doctors and doing other therapies? This point, this was really kind of the only thing I was doing. Um, I really had returned to living a fairly normal life at this point. And I was continuing to see my LLMD in Manhattan um, for checkups, but my appointments now were spaced out. I wasn't on a regular regular regimen with him, um, so I didn't need to go as frequently. And this is the LLMD that basically told you he couldn't help you anymore. Correct. But he it sounds like he was still working with you in collaboration with your your other practitioners. Yeah, um, he was definitely at this point. I started to really learn a lot about myself, being my own advocate, being in the driver's seat of my own health, and then also just building my team around me. So sometimes refer to it as my team. I have an LLMD, but I also have a pharmacy that I work with, um, and then some other specialists. And it's really a collaboration. It's not one doctor that's providing everything. I think it's a really good way to look at it, that this doctor really got you into a place where you were symptom-free for a while. He got you further than anybody else, this doctor in New York City, this Lyme specialist. So you kept him on your team, 
But when he couldn't help you anymore, you brought in more support and other team players to help you, but kept him on because he was such an integral part of your healing journey. So, it, you know, now you, you're getting your, your health is getting even better again after doing this immunobiofrequency therapy. You stop after about 12 months. And at this point, are you totally symptom free? This point, I don't, I think, I I think when I stopped, I was definitely symptom free, but I eventually started to have some symptoms creep back up. Um, One thing I've learned is really trying to manage my stress um, and manage my everything in my life that I can control, um, diet, exercise, um, sleep. And I think I was still learning at this point. So I had some symptoms start to creep back up. Um, still seeing my LLMD in Manhattan and he suggests that I go on another course of antibiotics. Um, but at this point I had started to introduce other holistic therapies and into my protocol. So I think I was not ready to jump back in to doing more antibiotics. I finally had like started to heal my gut after doing years of oral and IV antibiotics. And I was, my health was evolving. So you were getting better and you chose not to opt into the antibiotics because you didn't want to, you didn't want to add more damage into the damage that you were reversing, frankly. Yeah. Now, at this point, you mentioned that you were doing more natural therapy. So what were those therapies you were doing naturally that were working? Well, I think I was just really trying to um, keep a healthy immune system. So making sure that I was taking my vitamins and my supplements on a regular basis. Um, I had introduced the amino biofrequency therapy at one point, um, just really trying to do things that were less invasive. So did this, did this upward trend of your health continue on where you were continuing to get better and better? And, you know, what, walk us through what happened next in in your journey. It sounds like you're having these ups and downs and I'm fearful that another, another down came at this point. Yeah. So I don't know that I like, there was another down, but it wasn't, I am confident that I will never be in the place that I once was knowing what I know today and having all the tools in my toolbox, um, and trying to not get, not get so sick. I know signs, I know symptoms that I can get ahead of it. So I see some symptoms starting to creep back up. Um, not ready to start more antibiotics. I, at this point, look for more answers and another opinion. So I, um, I think this was actually at the point when I'm starting to meet the generation Lyme group. Um, I'm hearing this one practice in New York city come up in conversations here and there. Um, so I give them a call and see one of, um, the specialists there and have been there for, I guess, three or four years now. Um, have, I've been treating on and off. I've treated with some antibiotics. Um, I've done some IVs, um, injections, um, but also have tried to introduce, um, 
other, I guess, protocols um, into managing and treating my symptoms. So you went to a Generation Lyme meeting and they recommended a specific practitioner whom you went to and saw and have been seeing for the last four years and having success with, right? Yeah, I don't know if they exactly recommended it, um, but I think that some of um, the, the group members there, they were saying that they were patients and speaking very, very highly of certain um, practitioners. Gotcha. So some of the attendees of the meetup were telling you they were treating with this physician and having success. Yes. Now I have to ask because we love Brooke Stoddard. Was he there? Yes, Brooke was there. <laughs> so if you can just, you know, quickly walk us through what is Generation Line for those people who are listening and don't know what Generation Line is. Can you give us a quick overview of what they are and how they help people in the Lyme community? Um, Generation Lime is a nonprofit organization and they host, uh, I think, weekly meetups. Um, now, because of COVID, they're virtual. And um, it's a com- safe community for Lyme patients, um, caregivers, family members that all can come together and share their stories. So now that you're you're going to this new center in New York City after learning about it from some GenLine participants, you mentioned that you did a couple of things there and they really helped you get your health back again because you felt like some things creeping in. Give us some specifics. What specific things did you do at this new center that you went to? So I think that uh, um, it was a, f- a fresh perspective um, of different types of treatments. Um, I started doing different treatments like um, Linea, which I hadn't hadn't done in the past. Um, currently on disulfiram, I did the sulfa protocol, which was a little rough in some ways. Um, I've also done some injections there um, to help just boost my immune system um, and minimize some of my fatigue to help make me function a little bit better day to day. Um, but really I think it's what I like about my treatments here is really thinking of everything holistically and how, um, my diet is integrated into the plan. Um, exercise is part of it. Um, it's not one size fits all. And it's a conversation with the practitioner every time of, what I'm feeling, what my goals are, um, what some of my thoughts are, and really brainstorming to come up with the best plan. And that's what we've seen, you know, Nicole, you're our 237th podcast guest. And the ones that we see have the most success are the ones that approach healing from chronic Lyme and tick-borne illnesses from a holistic standpoint. And it sounds like you finally found you were doing a lot of great things. You made some amazing progress, but once you found this facility to take a holistic approach and look at your body as a whole is when everything fell into place. And you finally realized this is what you need to do to feel better and stay better. Right. I mean, that's kind of, I think what you're telling us here with, with this epiphany of this holistic approach versus a let's kill the bacteria. Let's kill, you know, let's kill the Bartonella, et cetera. Yeah, I think that I finally have, I'm, I'm in a good place because I'm looking at all aspects of my life and 
trying to live healthy, but also treating versus just treating the symptoms or trying to kill the bacteria. So talk to us a little bit about the sulfur protocol. You said you did that earlier on and now you're currently on that sulfur. So walk us through for our listeners. What is that protocol and why was it so hard? The sulfur protocol is a combination of sulfur, um, I don't know, I guess antibiotics. So I was taking them orally as well as intravenously. I had a lot of success, um, but what made it really challenging was after or during the, the treatments, you smell. Um, I can't smell myself, so I can't tell you what I, exactly I smelled like, but I can promise you that the people I was around smelled me. So it made it tricky because at this point I was still working and I would try to time my, I was going twice a week for these infusions and had to try to time it around my week of social activities, but also a work schedule. So I would go to work one day and then work from home the next few days. So I wasn't, um, so disruptive in the office. So you used the pandemic to your advantage and you worked from home after these treatments. So you wouldn't smell the office basically. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly though, what, what's special about the sulfur protocol with antibiotics? What advantage does sulfur have in treating chronic Lyme? What, what is it actually being used for? Oh, um, I'm not really sure. Um, I, when I was starting the protocol, um, my practitioner at the time, um, he said these were some old, um, drugs. Well, I guess traditional. So kind of going back to the basics, um, and giving something else a shot that I hadn't tried in the past. Um, but I don't know exactly what it was doing. Did it help? You met you. So the challenging part obviously was a smell, but did it help them? Were there any other side effects? Um, it for sure helped. Um, I wouldn't say that it was the thing that helped me the most, but I, I found relief from it and I, I felt like it worked. Um, but not something that I wanted to continue for the long term because of the side effects of the smell. Gotcha. And just, just so for our listeners, I just want to do, I want to share that the sulfur is actually good at addressing the uh, stationary phase of the Lyme bacteria. So as we know, Lyme bacteria has different stages. It can, you know, it can go from a, a spirochete to a, to a, um, a, you know, cyst, but it's, it's really good at getting the stationary phase of the cell for the, the spir- uh, for the bacteria. So it, it hits it at the different light of stages that it can go into when it, when it, tries to hide or evade the immune system in drugs. So if you're hitting it with antibiotics, it's hitting the active portion of, or the active bacteria, but the inactive bacteria are being addressed by the sulfur. So I think that's why they use the antibiotics with the sulfur to get both, you know, the, the bacteria in all of its stages, if that makes sense. Um, so talk to us about the disulfiram, because that's a really common topic. And we do know that Brooke Stoddard from Generation Lyme had great success and has been in remission since being on Disulfiram. So what, what is your current experience now being on Disulfiram? Yeah. So I talked to Brooke, um, about the Disulfiram. This was something that I had kind of lingering on, um, as an idea for a while. And 
I currently feel pretty, pretty good. Um, I function and feel great day to day. Um, but when looking at some of my lab work, there's still Lyme lingering. So that's what led us to start the disulfiram. I'm on an extremely low dose of it. So I'm thankful that I haven't felt, um, some of the symptoms from disulfiram or the sensitivities, I should say that some people experience. Um, I thankfully don't notice a huge difference on days I take it versus days I don't. Um, I've been back to working out um, at a, like a boot camp type gym and experienced some foot pain when I'm exercising. It's usually when my heart rate is up. Um, so I've been trying to um, figure out if it's related to the disulfiram, lowering some of the dose to see if that helps. Um, but those were are really like the big things um, with the disulfiram. So I know a lot of people are worried about disulfiram because it can lead to things like psychosis and anxiety and some mental health related issues. And I think the the warning you're giving is start out slow and steady because doing that you have had some pretty good results and haven't had, you haven't experienced any of these extreme side effects that others have had in the community. No. And I've been on it for, um, several months now. Um, I think the key is slow and steady and there's no plan to increase the dose, um, because I'm having success on it. And I have to ask, so before you started the disulfiram, are you feeling better now over the last few months than you were prior? Meaning, have you seen a real tangible positive impact? I mean, you mentioned that you were now doing, uh, you know, this, you're exercising more and you're going to, you know, a boot camp style workout, but are there other things that you're seeing improve in your health as well? Um, I think that's like, I guess it's probably the biggest thing that's changed. Um, over the past several months, I think I've started to resume a little bit of a normal life, but largely related to COVID um, and slowly starting to come out of my quarantine, but I feel um, pretty good that I am able to um, get up in the morning and work a full day, um, work out, um, starting to engage in some social activities um, within reason again, and overall feel pretty good. So now we know, obviously, you're in North Carolina for the last few months or so that you've, you've, been, you've made that your permanent home. How does it work treating with the facility in New York City? Are you doing it virtually? Do you have to travel? Uh, people may be listening that live in other parts of the country or the world and want to possibly look at this facility, but are, are wondering if they can do it remotely. Yeah, so that was definitely something that I considered when we were thinking about moving was um, my clinic is in New York how is that going to work or what is it going to look like being so far um, made me a little bit nervous. And I think that the pandemic has definitely helped ease some of that. Um, I am at a point in my health journey that I don't need to be there on a regular basis, but I've also um, have been seeing my practitioner over telehealth for the past two years. And I know that there may be times where I need to go in, in person, um, but it's not every single appointment and I am able to have a relationship or yeah, a re patient practitioner relationship from afar. 
So people, for people that are listening and may be interested in treating with your, your Lyme specialist in New York City, who really helped you get over the hurdle and did DIV therapy with you and then was, was humble enough to admit he couldn't help you any further, but got you really far, or possibly that they want to treat with your practitioner that you found for the immunobiofrequency therapy, or even now this new facility in New York City that you're currently treating with through telehealth. Those are three really powerful practitioners that you partnered with to help you get to where you are today. If people are listening and want to work with those members of your team, are you comfortable sharing their names? And if not, can they DM you on social media for their contact information? Um, of course. I am happy to share their names. Um, Dr. Raxlin was the LLMD who saved my life. I'm not 100% sure he's practicing in Manhattan anymore. Um, stop chasing pain is who I was seeing for the amino biofrequency therapy. And I'm happy to pass that information along to anybody who's interested and share his information. He's also very active on Instagram and I'm currently at the Morrison center. Morrison center. We've had a lot of people have great success at the Morrison center on this podcast. So my final question before Rich picks up is going to be a very hard one. Looking back at your entire journey, and you've been through a lot in your life, Nicole, if you had to give one piece of advice to somebody who you ran into on the streets of North Carolina and said to you, I was just diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, what do you recommend I do? What would that be? Um, I think first and foremost, be your own health advocate. Um, Don't accept no as an answer. I can't help you. Um, you know, your body better than anybody else. And I think being part of a team with your doctor is going to provide great success in your healing journey. And I would say something that I wish I knew in the beginning that I wasn't doing until I was pretty far into my journey is detoxing. It's really, really helpful, um, to detox the bacteria die off, um, happens at a much higher rate than our bodies can handle. And, um, detoxing definitely can help ease some of that. So Nicole, one of the patterns we've seen with people who have had the kind of success that you've had is they ultimately become the CEO of their health or the boss of their health by building a team and building a toolbox, right? And that's really what the advice is that you're given, right? I mean, each one of us has to take responsibility for ourselves. Each one of us has to read our own body signals and each one of us has to build our own team and our own toolbox so that we will be able to overcome the challenges that uh, we face with Lyme disease. Yeah, I think um, it's great to look for help. Um, people specialize in different areas of medicine as they do in other career paths as well. Um, but I think nobody knows your body better than you. And it's important to have a voice in your treatment plan. But it's also important to recognize that each practitioner is going to have their limitation. And one of the challenges with having an unhealthy relationship with a practitioner is um, some practitioners, as you had seen early on in your journey, believe that once you're done treating with that practitioner and that practitioner uh, can't do any more for you, you're healed. Even though you have symptoms, even though you're not feeling better, you're healed because they can't do any more, right? 
And unfortunately, patients respond well to that because you want to hear that you're healed. You want to hear that it's over. You want to be in a position where you're moving on with your life. But the truth is, what we have to do is we have to recognize that team members have to change. And if we're going to use a sports metaphor, teams change every year. The New York Yankees are not exactly the same you know, the same players this year as they were last year or the year before, and they'll be different next year, right? I mean, we have to bring new players in to play different positions. And it's the same thing with doctors because each one of us is going to have our limitations. No matter how good a marketing professional you are, you have some limitations, Nicole. No matter how good a lawyer I am, I have some limitations. What we have to do is we have to build a team of people around us, all directed by how you are feeling and what results you're getting as the line boss. Yeah. And I think that our life goes in seasons. Um, so similar to your sports metaphor, I think that I've had seasons of my life and there have been different practitioners that have come in and exited for different reasons. And um, I feel confident in where I'm at today about the team that I have. Um, but it took me a while to get here. Um, and I think that that's really one piece of advice that I could pass on would be really just being the, I guess the CEO or um, being the coach of your team and um, knowing when some of these doctors um, can't help you anymore. It's, you don't have to accept the answer of they're done or there's nothing, you're healed. But Nicole, it's more than being a coach. I mean, again, we're, we're both Yankees fans as uh, New York area. Um, and I know you are because I saw on your social media, you, you had a Yankees hat, right? We really need to be like George Steinbrenner. We have to be the boss, right? We're not the coach. The coach works for us, right? And, and hiring a health coach may be something that people want to do, right? We, 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 we don't want to be the general manager. We don't want to be the players. We want to be the boss, right? And when we're the boss, everybody works for us. And then it comes together in this collaborative effort. And I really liked when you use that term collaborative, right? It's not one doctor. It's not one person writing it on the white horse. It's a collaboration of and, a, and, a, and contributions from a number of different people, all of whom are there to serve the boss, you, right? Yes. And each one of them is supposed to give you little frameworks that you put together based on how well they're working you working for you, and then you put them in your toolbox, right? So now, now Nicole, because she and, and her fiance want to live somewhere other than in New York City, other than right next door to her doctors, was able to go and live her life to its fullest and in a place where she wants to live because she could bring her tools and she could bring her team with her because they're her team and her tools. Yeah. It's exactly what we did. Um, and I feel that I have the resources available to me today to be able to do that. And um, I would encourage everybody else that it is possible. Well, but Nicole, because you're an empowered patient and because you're the boss, you know that if, if it turns out that somebody on your team is not serving you well, you'll just replace them. Sounds a little harsh, but yes. 
it isn't harsh, it's empowering. And that's what patients need to be. They need to be empowered because they are, again, the CEO of the health. So they are the line boss and you are a really powerful model for that, that philosophy. So I, I really thank you for the way you're describing your beautiful story. So let's talk about another transformation. You went from being the person who was essentially held captive by the limitations of your doctors to being now the line boss and in charge of your healing plan, your team and your tools, but you've also become an empowered advocate. And that's how we located you through some of the brilliant work you're doing on social media. Uh, you know, we've noticed that you're an, a, a mighty well ambassador. We've noticed you've put up a, a number of really powerful posts with some of the uh, Global Lime Alliance posters, and you've been really creative about the way you filled in the blank. Um, you know, we've noticed that you're active, you know, in, in, in events like the Write Out Lime event. So talk to us about how you went from being, you know, the the sick gal who was doing her best to try to get through her day to now being this activist who is, you know, doing really, really beautiful work and powerful work with your marketing skill set. Yeah, so I think um, throughout the your health journey or throughout my health journey, there's definitely different stages. Um, once I was able to get past, I think, the grieving stage, um, I started to be a little bit more open to talking about my story. Um, there was a point in my life while I was working in the city and doing um, infusions through my Hickman IV that I, I didn't talk about any of this. Um, I thankfully have some pictures that I took along the way, but nobody at the office knew that I was sick except my boss. And with time, I realized how um, large of an issue Lyme disease is and how hard it was for me to find information. And from my experience, I want to be able to help others and share what I've gone through, help to advocate and hopefully see change in my lifetime for better testing, um, uh, better treatments. And it's very important for me to um, get involved and share my story. So talk to us about how this marketing skill set that you developed through college and through your, through your professional experience has been so helpful to you in your advocacy. I mean, I, you know, again, looking at your social media, you've used so many really creative tools and you've used so many effective ways of, 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 of getting out the message about, for example, uh, I saw one of the posters you put up about how many people were diagnosed with Lyme disease last year and the series of different messages that you, that you, you use there. So talk to us about how you know, the, the skill set and this aptitude that you have for marketing has been so helpful in what you're contributing to the Lyme disease community. Yeah, so um, years ago when I started to feel like I was ready to share my story, um, I started talking about it to people close in my life about, oh, gee, like, what can I do? Um, this is years ago, and Instagram was probably in its infancy. And um, between my um, professional life of a digital marketer, I work in the advertising space with digital platforms day in and day out, very familiar with Instagram and Facebook, um, as well as some of the other platforms like YouTube, um, Spotify, Google. 
I felt like it was a really great place to marry both of my experiences or my knowledge sets, I should say. And I started um, an account that's dedicated to my health journey that I share, um, I would say snippets of what I'm going through. And I really try to encompass all aspects now. So there's um, posts about advocacy, um, about exercising just really all aspects of my life because this is who I am and it's um really woven into every aspect of my life today so uh you know we we really do love the great work you're doing um not just as a digital marketer but as um as someone who is a wonderful model for uh both um belief and for healing uh, so in the spirit of all the help that you're offering to so many people in the community, I'm going to ask you the final question we ask everyone on the Take Bootcamp podcast. Uh, and I'm going to make this, um, make this a little more personal for you because we know that you're uh, planning a wedding. You're going to, you're going to be um, married in a few short months. Congratulations for being healthy enough to do all the work that you need to do to plan this wedding. Um, but if the wonderful man who you actually met and went to actually one of your first dates at a Generation Lime event, which is another, I think, a really cool part of your story. But if that wonderful young man, who's also wonderful because he's a lawyer, and you know, I love those 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 folks. Um, um, what if, God forbid, he was uh, bit by a tick and he came into the room you're in right now? What would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Oh gosh, um, I'd probably freak out a little bit, um, but I would, if he still had the tick on him, um, help him remove the tick and call the doctor and have him immediately start a course of antibiotics um, just to prevent uh, the long road of Lyme that could be and really just um, catch it in the beginning because it could be easily treatable. Nicole, I can't thank you enough for sharing your beautiful story with the Tick Bootcamp community. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Nicole Oliveira. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Nicole, please visit her Instagram page at Nicole with Lime. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.